glad you're here. That is the theme of Grace Bible Church. Jesus is all to us, and we are very, very grateful for that. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20, verse 19. We will attempt to cover 19 through 29 this morning. I think I'm down to about five messages left in the book of John. After a little over three years, we are going to get through the book of John. Uh, praise the Lord. Um, I could have probably spent twice as long. Um, one of the preachers feel guilty sometimes that we did. It's just so much to learn and know, and, and how do you get that done in, in such a short time? So we praise the Lord for that. While you're turning there, let me just uh, highlight a couple of announcements. I'm extremely excited about May 18th. I don't know. It wasn't in the bulletin this week. I think it was last week. That my mentor who raised me in the ministry is going to be here, and he's going to preach. And he is an older man. Um, he has battled cancer. And, um, but he is, um, he is my Apostle Paul. Let me say it that way. He raised me in the ministry. And he's going to be with us on the 18th. You don't want to miss that date uh, to hear him. Uh, he is a, a dear Dear brother in the Lord, and for five years I've been trying to get him here, and we're going to have him here on the 18th, so um, very excited uh, for you to meet him, and uh, then you can blame him for all my problems, so, <laughs> but it'll be good, I'm sure you will enjoy it. All right, let me read our text to you as you stand and look at the Word of God, chapter 20, verse 19, so when it was evening on the, first, on, on the day, the first day of the week, And when the doors were shut, your Bible may say locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the places of the nails and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been locked and stood in, the midst of, in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and thrust it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You may be seen it. Father, what an amazing text. Lord, we will only scratch the surface of the profound truths of this text, but Lord, we would pray that you, by your spirit, you would take the truth of this text and lift it off the pages and pierce us with truth, Lord. Cause us, Lord, to believe deeply in the Son of God and all that he accomplished for us. 
Lord, strengthen our faith this morning to be those who aren't only hearers of the word of God, but yet doers because our faith drives us. We pray this for your glory, for the exaltation, the adoration of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we say amen. This is an amazing text. I entitled it, The Gifts from Jesus. The Gifts from Jesus. And we'll see several of them as we go down here. One, you will see peace that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a standard Hebrew greeting, but yet this one has particular significance to it as he greets them. You will see the role of the Spirit as it begins to, Jesus begins to display what's going to happen when the Spirit of God does come upon these men at the birth of the church We will see forgiveness of sins, the greatest gift a believer can ever have, and yet he will be able to share that with others. You can give this gift, you can claim this gift. And faith, and faith, faith that changes our view of God, faith that is a God-given faith that causes us to be blessed ones, the scriptures will tell us this morning. But all this is the result of the cross, isn't it? Even physically, we see the results of the cross. Jesus here speaks of his wounds of his hands and his side. And upon the recognition of this in verse 20, the disciples rejoice over them. Upon the recognition of the wounds of the cross, Thomas makes an incredible claim of equality of Jesus and God. What an amazing statement. It is the cross that changed these men. It is the work of Lord Jesus Jesus Christ upon that cross that enabled them, that strengthened them to believe. J.C. Ryle said this, one of my favorite dead guys. He said, look to the cross. And this is what I want to see happen this morning. Look to the cross, think of the cross, meditate on the cross, and then go and try to set your affections on the world if you can. Did you catch that? Look to the cross, think of the cross, meditate on the cross, and then go and set your affections on the world if you can. I'll tell you, we can walk out of here today and we can be consumed with the world's things and we did not set our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want victory over sin today? Are you tired of struggling with things? You're tired of your flesh getting the upper hand on you. Look to the cross. It will cause your affections to grow greater and greater for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what this passage is about. It's about men and those in the future who will believe in the Lord Jesus, even though they have not yet seen him, that become more and more blessed, more and more strong to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in this text. I just have two thoughts this morning. I broke the text into two areas. And then we'll have communion together. First thought is the resurrected Savior and his pledge of the Spirit and a sin-forgiving gospel. This is an amazing set of events that are happening here. Jesus is going to pledge to them, this resurrected Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to pledge to them, promise them the Spirit of God's coming to them. And he's going to demonstrate how it's going to come. That's what these verses are about. They're not some goofy, wild thing that some churches get carried away in. It's a pledge, it's a promise of what's going to come, and we'll see that when it does come. And then he is promising them a gospel that if you share it, people can get their sins forgiven. It's an amazing thing. 
Many times I've been on a plane and my line of work is a little different than most. And so I sit down and start a conversation with somebody. I know the question's coming because I usually ask them what they do and try to learn a little bit. But then they ask me, hey, what do you do? Ooh, I've been waiting for this. But my answer really isn't any different than your answer according to this text we're going to find out. I tell them often, oh, I have a great job. I have one of the most, the best jobs you can ever have. Of course, by then they're wanting to know because they don't like theirs. And I tell them this. I get to tell them. I get to tell people how they can have their sins forgiven. Now, the conversation either just goes real cold and seats are changed around (laughs) or we get to share the gospel with them. But this is no different than you and I. You and I get to share the gospel and this first half is going to show us that God is going to do that through you and I. But let's pick up the scene here in verse 19. So when it was of the evening of that day, the resurrection day, And notice what day it is, the first day of the week. This changed the church at the birth of the church, which again happened on the first day of the week. Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week. So we come and gather as the church on the first day of the week. It was on that day when the doors were shut. Your Bible may say locked. It's probably not a bad interpretation of that word. They're secured is the idea where the disciples were, for they were still afraid of the Jews. And here comes Jesus. He came and he stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. This is resurrection day. <laughs> but a couple of weeks ago, our brother Ron said, come back next Sunday, the tomb's still empty. I love that statement. I think Jeff hitchhiked on that last week. What an amazing thing. The tomb is still empty. And here we are back as we study through John, the resurrection evening. This is the evening of the resurrection. And they are there with the doors locked. Presumably, they're, they, they, they're afraid of the Jews. They've seen Christ arrested. They've seen him brutally treated. Some of the trial were questioned whether they were his followers. There was fear among them. Look what they did to Jesus. What would they do to his followers? And then, miraculously, Jesus appears in the midst of these scared disciples. Here he is, knowing they need him. Isn't this Christ? Even this in our darkest, most fearful times when we don't understand how things are going to play out, there he is. There he is, teaching, coming to you, securing your fears. That's our Lord. That's our Lord. He has the ability to move wherever he wants, even before his Uh, crucifixion he did these kind of things Luke chapter 4 said he passed through the midst of them and he went away they're about ready in Luke chapter 4 to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth and yet it was not his time and so he quickly just disappears out of their midst he has that ability to do but now we're in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible says that as his first appearance that he came in Luke that he sat with them and, and they witnessed his wounds and, and then he asked to have food with them and, and so they see him, they know him, they, this is the one we've been walking with. But this time Christ is in this resurrected body and he startles them a little bit. Luke twenty four thirty seven says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. 
Jewish world was full of myths and fears and ghosts and all these things. Devil was working full time, as we know. We talked about this, how much demon possession was around the time of the cross. There was all kinds of things that were happening that were at times unexplainable. And their first thought is, wow, Luke records, we may have seen a ghost. And think about this. They had watched a brutal murder of their Savior. It's brutal. I mean, we, we studied, we saw what he went through for our sake. This was not Lazarus going to sleep and then Jesus coming and raising him from the dead as miraculous as that was an amazing event that they should have remembered. This was a brutal murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And doubtlessly, many of the disciples watched from a great distance his death. But now... Now they seem to be still frightened. They're in the upper room here. Here they are waiting to see what's going to happen. There's great conversation going around of who has seen Jesus. But look at his first words to them. Peace be with you. I, I thought about this long this week. I thought, man, after forsaking Jesus and allowing him to suffer alone, no one... No one took up the cause with him. Even after they said they would die with him, they did not. And maybe the disciples were worried about what Jesus would say to them, maybe. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for hanging around. I mean, we humanly think that. But Jesus thinks none of those things. He knew they would betray him. They, he knew they would disappear. He knew he was come to die and suffer alone. It was the only way to bring them and us to the Father. And so his first words are, peace be with you. At first glance, you might look at this and say, well, this is a pretty standard Hebrew greeting. It is. It's used throughout the scriptures. It's used by angels, by the Lord himself many times. But here, particularly, it has a great meaning to it. And the reason is, is what Jesus just accomplished on the cross. Can you, can you imagine that Friday night and you are on temple duty and the veil between the Holy of Holies, the holy place and the most holy of holies where God's Shekinah glory was said to resign is now rent, ripped in two. The word's out. Something's different. There is now not a wall of separation between God and man. Jesus has closed that gap. The veil's torn. What, what greater peace can you, can you imagine that, that I can go now into the presence of God Almighty because of what Jesus has accomplished? Then think about God's wrath been satisfied. Ephesians 2 says that we were children of wrath by nature. So what that means is we were born under the wrath of God. Our sin separated us from God and we were held there. We were born there by nature. Our natural existence kept us away from God because we sinned in Adam. And when Adam sinned, all sinned in him, Romans 5, and we were condemned and held there. And at the death of Christ, that, that wrath is fully satisfied in Jesus Christ and it's all taken away and the Father never looks at his children in wrath ever again. That make that peace be with you a little stronger? Peter's sins were gone. John's gone. Thomas is gone. Philip's gone. So on. They're gone. They're no longer over their heads. 
because of what Jesus has done. Just like you and I, our sin has been taken care of. Peace has come through Jesus' finished work. Colossians chapter one, verse 20, just says this, just jot this down. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And everybody's looking for peace these days. How do we stop the Middle East? How do we take care of um, the Russian problem over there? How do, how do we deal with Somalia? How do we, where's going to get peace in all these things? They will not find it until their faith is put in the Prince of Peace. And so I think this first introduction that Jesus gives here is powerful. Peace. There's some of you that don't have any peace yet. You may be here and you just don't have any peace. You have, you have peace because you've made it in the world, you pay your bills, but you don't have eternal peace yet. And there's some of us that have peace that don't rely on it. We, we try to live our lives without the resurrected Savior. And you know what happens. Peace seems to flutter away. See, it's when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we find that joy, that calmness, those sorrows that we read about in Psalms 116 start to fade away and they're replaced with joy. I don't, I don't think even here, when you look at this text, that the disciples fully grasp this and I, and I don't think because they don't have the Spirit of God upon them. But it will not be long before they do and they will grasp what Jesus has said. Notice verse 20. And he had said this, peace be with you. He showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. See, this peace is accomplished through his wounds. They are simply recognizing him, that's Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross. That, that's not what that happens. They see his hands and his side and they rejoice. That's a great salvation verse, isn't it? That happened to you and me someday. There was a time in our life, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you looked and you saw his hands and his feet and him nailed on that cross because you're a sinner. And I get, guarantee you, if you truly got saved, you rejoiced. Isn't that beautiful? I love that verse. He shows them his hands and his sides and they rejoice. It's Jesus, the one who died for you. The one who gives you peace. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Peter doesn't forget this stuff. <laughs> I mean, the whole epistle, the first epistle is built on the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ as him who suffered for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 and 25, phenomenal verses tied to suffering. Verse 24 says, And he, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore them. God put them on him. God judged him as though he committed them. And the result of this, the middle of the verse, so that we might die to sin with him, we died with him, and might live to righteousness. That's the righteousness that Jesus gives us. Now notice the last of this phrase, for by his wounds you were healed. By his wounds. 
See, isn't it so important he showed them? Look, look, I've healed you. I've healed your black, dark heart. And you go, well, I don't know if I really need that. Well, look at verse 25. For you were continually strained like sheep. That means I, you're a sinner and you won't follow God. And so he need to die for your wandering, for your sinful behavior. He had to die for you. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. That's what he did. That's what his wounds do. They bring us to the chief shepherd. They bring us to the guardian of our souls. And believe me, you want him guarding your soul when death comes knocking on your door. You want him guarding your soul. Oh, I love that verse. I've shared that with many people in their last hours of life. Is he your shepherd? Is he guarding your soul? Because if your faith is in him, he promises to do that. These men were scared, remember? They're frightened. And he says, he turns their gloom to joy, doesn't he? I mean, that's what happens. They're frightened. And, and, and what convincing proof that Jesus had. Look, look at me. I got holes in my hands. I have a, I have a sword thrusted through my side. I'm not a ghost. This isn't doceism. This isn't some spirit being that replaced Jesus on the cross and died in his place. This is Jesus who really died and really hung on a tree for you and I. Wow. Don't miss this. Look at John 16 as you flip back there. This is a pro- fulfilled prophecy, this joy that they have. He told them this just um, right before his death and night before his death um, as they were preparing and in the upper room and uh, taking um, the remembrance of what he was going to do and Judas has left and, and now it's just the 11, he's with them and, and this great stretch of teaching in John in this section goes forward. But look at John 16, verse 20. <laughs> John remembers this later. He says, Jesus says, this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament I mean, they must, can you imagine, Peter, Peter said, the Bible says of Peter and Luke, when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, that he went out and wept, what? Bitterly. And see, Jesus says, here, before that ever happens, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. We got rid of him. We got rid of that scoundrel. We got rid of that heretic. They mocked his death. They rejoiced at his death. And Jesus told them that the world's going to rejoice. You're going to weep and lament, but the world's going to rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. I love that verse. And he relates it here, something that we could, well, some ladies more than men, but something you can get your mind around here. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been brought or born into the world. So he uses a very understanding event that happens in a lot of people's lives. And then he says it again, therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away. (laughs) 
Here he is. He's fulfilling that. And they rejoiced in verse 20 to see their Savior. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I send you. Now comes the commissioning of Jesus' disciples. Jesus repeats his greeting of peace to them after he shows them his wounds. And he says, look, as the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. And that's a theme through John over and over. I don't know how many times I found the word to send in, in John. It's just over and over. I, Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. And then the night before his death, he prays that the Father will send them. And now here he is commissioning his disciples to be sent just like he was sent. Go with the message that I was given. And what Christ accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection would empower the effort of the disciples. This is what changes us. This is their message for the rest of their lives till they kill them. This is the message that they're going to preach. And the book of Acts clearly describes a very different group of disciples. Spirit of God falls on these men who are locked behind doors, afraid up here, and they become these men with an insatiable appetite to preach the gospel to anybody who will hear, even those who killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of them will die horrible deaths. In fact, physically, maybe worse than what Christ went through. But they are men now undeterred undeterred because they have the gospel. And here, this is a great passage because Jesus is commissioning them. He's sending them out. I am sending you out just like the Father sent me. Take the peace that I have given you and I'm sending you with that peace to go share with others. And you know, these men wrote the scriptures. God wrote through them. We have their writings of John and Peter and James. We have the writings of these men that God sent out and commissioned them that we can know the word of God. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed. Now the little phrase, on them, is not in the original text. Uh, we just, somehow it got into all of our English translations, none of us like it. But the Bible says he breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there is probably no more verse that's been abused in scriptures by many, many groups than this one. And this is a fascinating verse, and, it's, and I want to help you understand what he does here. He breathes as an example of what's going to happen 40 days later to them. And I can prove this to you so you understand it. But most people think that there was some kind of puff of air that came out of Jesus that contained the Holy Spirit. That's not what happened here. And it becomes dangerous because people take this and try to reproduce this and try to do something that only God could do. He is, again, doing what God has done all through the Old Testament. He is giving a gesture, an act, something that foretells of something that is going to come. That's what he's doing here. Jeremiah was told to build a pot, buy a piece of land. Others were told to buy and sell things. There were things that were done in order to teach what exactly God was going to do in the future here. He was going to give a gesture here so that you would see and understand what God was giving here. And this is a beautiful, beautiful text to help you understand that he is pledging something to them. So in other words, Christ did not give the disciples a spirit through a puff of air, but he gave them a pledge. And, and you go, well, how do you know that? Well, one, Thomas isn't even in the room. So did just these 10 get it? Oh, and what about 
Matthias, the other disciple who's at it. He's not here yet. What about Apollos and Barnabas and Timothy and uh, how about all these others? So you realize that's not really what is happening here. There's a teaching of something that's going to happen. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He says, this is going to happen in the future. I'm going to breathe on you in a unique way. One of the things that helps you realize this, that this is not... um, them getting saved here. Some people said, well, this is where they get saved. But Jesus already said in John 15, 3, you are already clean. I've already cleaned you. You're already right to stand in front of me. So the fact that is that the followers of Christ were waiting to receive the Spirit, it indicates that there's, there's a different relationship between the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The, whole, the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon them, empowered them, pointed to them to something that was going to happen in the future. Now, let me prove to you why this actually didn't happen at this point. Look at Acts chapter 2. Remember, it's... That breathe was a sample, was, a, was an example of what was going to come, and we see it in chapter 2, verse 1. This is 40 days later. 40 days later, this exact thing happens to the disciples and all those who were in the upper room. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They were all there. In, in John, they're not all there. <laughs> But here the Bible says that they are all together in one place, and you can read the end of uh, Acts 1, 12, all the way down to see this. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like the rushing of wind. The breath of God, now breathing. And it filled the house, and they were there sitting, and there appeared to be them to tongues, languages of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show you why we know that this didn't happen that night. Go back just to chapter 1. Acts is written by, by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he's writing to Theophilus, this man that he's convincing, trying to convince that Jesus is who he said he is. So he wrote the account of the life of Jesus, and now he's going to write the account of the life of the church to Theophilus. So he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So now I'm going to write to you about what happened, the result of it. And that's what the book of Acts is, is the result of the life of Christ. Until the day when he was taken up into heaven, after he... He, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's partly about what happens in John 16. And to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So one of the proofs there is that he appeared to the disciples in the upper room twice. But he, proved, he appeared to many others. We, we looked at that at Easter time. For gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. He's talking about John 20. So I promised you this. It's coming. For John baptized with water, but you, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit for many days from now. Not many days from now, I'm going to bring the breath of the Holy Spirit upon you. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it time you will restore the kingdom of Israel? 
Is this the time? Is this going to happen? He, they're, 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 they're still trying to struggle with what, what the restoration of Israel. We're going to defeat the enemies. And, and, and he responds to them and he says, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So when Jesus returns and the restoration of Israel, all is set in God's order. God has a plan. He's established that. And the third of the Old Testament teaches that. But look at verse 8. Here's what I'm after. But you will, future tense, so I'm proving to you it didn't happen in, in John 20. It was a promise. It was a pledge. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When it happens, he's talking to just to the disciples here, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and all in Samaria and all and even in the remotest parts of the earth. So it's a promise in chapter two, it happens. So when you turn back to John 20, this is the evidence of something that's going to come. It's a beautiful promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come and it happens 40 days later and these men are filled and gripped with the Spirit of God and they begin to preach of men unashamed of the gospel. And God radically changes and develops and starts and plants his church on earth. And the church age is birthed. But look at verse 23, another verse that is quite often abused and ticked around a little bit. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This verse has is, is been taught that there's a succession that that God here is giving only to the apostles the ability to forgive sins and then they are going to pass it down in some kind of priestly order in it. Many have held to that. But scripture teaches us that only God can forgive sins. Mark 2, 7 says nobody can forgive sins but God. So I've never forgiven one person of any sin they've ever done. Now I've showed them how they can have their sins forgiven. And I've watched thousands of people get their sins forgiven. But it's something, it was a gift given to the disciples. He's given them the gift of the gospel. And, and when you study the New Testament, there's never a recording instance of the apostles or any other person absolving somebody of sin. There's never a passage within the scriptures. So what Christ is teaching here is that any Christian can declare somebody free of sins or still in their sins. And it's simply because of the gospel. It isn't though Christians have some kind of authority over everybody else. It's just you teach the gospel. In other words, those who believe the gospel have their sins forgiven. Those who reject Jesus still are in their sins. It is that simple. This is not a rocket science verse. This is a verse that helps you realize when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And, and, and he goes, look, I'm going to give you this. He's talking to disciples before the church's birth. He says, look, I'm going to give you the ability to do this. I'm going to give you the gospel. This is not the first time when Jesus said that I will build my church. And upon, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. The next verse, he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And those keys are the gospel. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Through some man saying you're in? Or do you get in through the finished work of Jesus Christ? See, that's the gospel. And he says, look, you, you have the gospel. And you say, well, this is how we know people are saved or not. Right? 
As believers, we can look at this and say, it's those who have received the forgiveness from Jesus Christ, their sins are gone. And you can actually sit with somebody, your own children, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, and say, you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven. You can tell them that. And you don't have to have a fancy robe or, or anything else or be, be, be a pastor of a church or something like that. You can firmly, clearly, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, say, your sins can be forgiven. We offer it here all the time. That's what we're about. And you can be assured just as well in this text that if somebody rejects Jesus that they're still in their sins. That's, that, that's a sad, that's a disheartening part of the verse, but it's true. People are saved because God knows us and draws us to himself and opens our mind. We're flooded with the knowledge of a need of a savior and our sins are forgiven. People go to hell because they reject Jesus. It's that simple. And these men were given that gift. And you remember, the church had not birthed. He was giving them a pledge, a promise. This was going to happen. And 40 days later, the Spirit of God falls on these men. Peter gets up and preaches a sermon, and he speaks, and every man hears it in his own language. And 3,000 people hit their knees and ask for forgiveness of their sins and are added to the church. And the next time it's four, and the next time it's five, and then the Bible says daily numbers were being added to the church, and they're preaching this message. Your sins can be forgiven. What a beautiful text. And you and I have that same opportunity. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. But the gospel message right here is also death to death to some. An aroma. Ooh, I don't like that. People hear the gospel and they get mad and get angry. It's death, they're dead in their sins and it leads to death when you reject Jesus. But it's also life to life to those who say, I need my sins forgiven. I know I'm a sinner. I want to put my faith in Jesus. He changes your life forever. So Christians can declare with confidence that people can be free from their sins. You can declare that confident. I hope you do that. I hope God gives you an opportunity this week to share with somebody in your life that you can say, I can give you with confidence how you can have your sins forgiven. I can't forgive them, but I know the one who can. It's a great job that you and I are given to share this. These incredible gifts that Jesus has given to the disciples and to us. He's given us peace that comprehends all understanding. It, it, he's given us the spirit of God that seals us for the day of redemption. And he's given us a message to forgive sins. Well, the second thought in the passage is the resurrected God and Savior that melts hard hearts of unbelief. The God who is a resurrected Savior here, he can melt the hearts of hard unbelieving. Look at this, verse 24, Thomas is back with them. Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them. Here he is, the Lord Jesus, on the first day of his resurrection, and he's making appearances. He first appears to Mary Magdalene, he then appears to the women of the tomb. Then he appears to the two disciples on Emmaus Road. Then he appears to Peter. And now he appears to the ten. And then a week later, he appears to Thomas. He's coming right to Thomas. The Bible uh, records that he appeared many times over the 40 days. And he appeared to more than 500 people, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But here he has a direct person he's coming after. And I think sometimes we look at Thomas and we go, oh, this is Doubting Thomas. He's kind of given that label. 
I think he's probably maybe a half-cut, empty type of guy, maybe. But I think that it's given to us for an example for our hard hearts. And when he appeared the first time, he wasn't present, but now he's there. And Thomas is there, and Jesus comes in, and, and he appears to these other ten, and now Thomas is there. And in verse 25, um, Jesus has appeared to the twelve, but Thomas was gone. In verse 25, the disciples are ecstatic. They say to him, look at this, we have seen the Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Thomas goes, mm-mm, no. Not till I put my fingers into hands where the nails were. Not literally till I thrust my hand into that side. I saw that sword from a distance. Will I believe? His Hard is somewhat hard, I think you can say. He had struggles. I mean, he, he wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in John 11, they're going back to raise Lazarus from the dead, but the Jews had just tried to kill him there. And Jesus says, now we're going back. He's dead, let's go back. And Thomas says, well, let's go and let's die with him. I mean, he's, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't see what God's doing, and so he kind of has a little bit of a bleak look on it. Let's go, and we'll just die. Let's go, and let's die. John 14, 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. After the Lord had told him he's going to prepare a place for him, and when he's done, he's going to come back and get him, and he says, we don't know how, where you're going, and we don't know the way. And that follows up with a great verse where Jesus says, I'll tell you the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So Thomas struggles with this a little bit, but, but, but Christ knows that. And I think that's what's so exciting. And so in verse 26, on the eighth day, that means, that would be translated in a Jewish way of saying this, exactly the exact same time as he was the time before he reappears. And, and John takes great pains to help us understand it's the exact same situation. The, the, a week later, from the resurrection, on that Sunday night, he appears and the Bible says in verse 26 that Thomas is with them this time. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, locked. They're still afraid. They're still in this upper room. The Spirit of God has not fallen on them yet. And he stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. This is a peace Thomas desperately needs. And, and look, again, be easy on Thomas. He, he, he watched what happened. See, he saw Lazarus raised from the dead and he may have been able to justify something or maybe he was just sleeping. I mean, he may have been able to do something because he didn't actually see Lazarus die the day Lazarus died. But it was a miracle and he's still wrestling with that. But I was there. I saw them put him on that tree. I saw them pierce him. I saw them wrap his body and put him in a tomb. Thomas is struggling with what he sees and what he needs to believe. And it's difficult for our brother Thomas. And look at verse 27, how our Lord dishandles this. He, then he says to Thomas, the exact same words he said the week before without Jesus being there. And I think there's several things that really awakens Thomas. One is he knew what Thomas said without being there. I mean, you almost want to see another verse like, did you guys tell him that? How does he know that verbatim of what I said? Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here and, with your hand and thrust it into my side and stop unbelieving. Maybe that got him. 
But here's what I am sure of. He saw Jesus and rejoiced, just like the rest of them. And some people have a hard heart. Some seemingly, we're all gone, we're all lost in our sins, but there's some that are harder than others, it seems. But Jesus can penetrate any one of them. And if you have an unbelieving spouse, you have a unbelieving children, unbelieving relatives, people that have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not give up. Our sovereign God can pierce the hardest hearts. Those who have the greatest doubt. And he can show his wounds to them. I love that. He can show his wounds. He can show that he died for them. And this is what he does with Thomas. He says, listen, Thomas, stop this faithless behavior and start acting like a believer. That's the literal idea there. Stop this faithless behavior. I've cleaned you already, John 15, 3. Stop this behavior, this faithless behavior, and start believing. Believe in me. And Thomas's response, brothers and sisters, is off the hook. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. At the sight of Jesus, his doubts fly away. Doubts have hardened his heart, melt like the snow in the summer heat. And it doesn't take long, it seems, or doesn't, I don't think Thomas even needed to touch those wounds. And Jesus here at his weakest point, he's, he's afraid, he's in this locked room, he, he doesn't believe what the eyewitnesses are telling him. And Jesus comes to him, and Thomas is overwhelmed with the glory of God. He's overwhelmed with the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all he can say is a, the greatest statement, in fact, not even up to this point have we ever seen this term used. We know that Jesus spoke and we understand him from the scriptures, from a past tense on our view, looking at it, that Jesus is God and he has to be God or he could not have accomplished anything that he did. But this is the first time this phrase, these two terms are put together. And the one who doubted the most says it. And Thomas knew that no one but God could overcome such a death like this. And so Thomas could only address Jesus with the highest, the highest verbal response, the greatest adoration and worship of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, my God, my Savior, my Lord, and my God. He puts them together. This inevitably changed the disciples' view. From, out, from then on, we watch the disciples preach different. First John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life, John writes. He got that language from what Tom, Thomas used. First, Second Peter chapter 1, 1, to those, as Peter writing, who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Boy, if you don't believe Jesus is God, you can't be saved. You have to believe that he's God, that he can forgive sins and he can change you. And they did. Is he, is he, ask that question yourself, do you believe him to be God and Savior? You need to. 
And you need to ask God to give you that faith you understand this. And then look at verse 29 as we close. And Jesus said to them, to him, speaking right to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? And, and, and the question's a little bit loaded. They don't have the spirit of God upon them. They're in desperate need to see the resurrected Savior. And I think this is a part, important part of the soteriology that they saw that they, because these men go on to write scriptures and they begin to be the men who display the gospel and they, no one could say this isn't true because they saw the resurrected Savior. They saw the death of Christ. They saw all this. This was an important aspect. But, but what Jesus is doing is he's using it to teach to you and I. And he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. See, Jesus is looking ahead to the time when physical evidence that Thomas had witnessed would no longer be available. I've never seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. I isn't there. I, don't, I, I never saw him hung on the cross physically. But I have here. And I believe the Bible. And the Bible says this, blessed are they. Blessed are they. This is an incredible expression to those who believe. They, they need it. It's, it's so important to understand. They needed to see the resurrected Savior because these are the men that are going to go and be the apostles in the planting of the early church. But, but here, God has them in between an old covenant and a new covenant. And the new covenant's going to be ushered in by his blood. And the Spirit of God's going to usher in the new covenant. And he's going to hold them for these 40 days and then the Spirit's going to fall upon them and they're going to go and preach this message. And lives are going to be changed and people are going to come to Christ. The Bible says this, for we walk not by faith. Excuse me, we walk not by sight, but faith, right? Peter goes on this and this is the closing verse and then we'll do communion together. 1 Peter chapter 1, see he doesn't forget this. He talks about the proof of our faith in verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's more precious than gold and perishable. It's the result of it is praise and glory. So that's why we sing and preach the way we do because we have a faith that's more precious than gold. And then he says this in verse 8. This is so important. This is coming right out of John 20. And though you have not seen him, he's speaking to you and I, you love him. Hmm. Where did he get that from? He heard Jesus say, blessed are those who believe when they didn't see. They came to me through faith alone. And though you have not seen him, you loved him. And though you do not see him even now, right now. But believe in him, the same thing that happened to the disciples in John 20. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Isn't that amazing? The, Peter says, look, it happened to us. When we saw Jesus, everything turned to joy. When you see Jesus through the word of God, though you have not seen him physically, but you put your faith in he is who he said he is and he did what he said he did, you'll have joy. Joy that is incomprehensible to the world. And you'll run to a savior because your faith will be in him. And that's what communion's about. Communion is not about eating or Jesus and getting him that way. That's not what communion was ever set up for. Communion is in remembrance that our Lord died for us, nails in his hands, hole in his side, 
and that he shed blood so that we could be free of our sins. Just like he told the disciples they could tell people about. That's what communion's about. And so as we go to communion, let me just give you some counsel. Communion does not save you. Communion rejoices that you're saved. Does that make sense? Communion doesn't save you. It rejoices that you're saved. It teaches you to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died and you have joy in him because you believe in his scarred, nailed, nail-scarred hands and you believed in, a, in that he suffered for you. And he took your punishment. He took your judgment. That's what communion's about. So we have an open communion here. If you are here and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to participate with us. But it is done through the gospel. It is done through the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, this will not do anything for you. It doesn't make you saved. But what it does do is it teaches you how to be saved. Put your faith in the one whose hands were scarred for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time in the word. Lord, we, we feel so inadequate when we come against your word. It's perfect, Lord, and it has so much depth to it. And we only get so deep in it, Lord, and, and our minds and our, and our understanding is limited, Lord. But Father, we could see enough in this passage. We could see that you offer us peace through Jesus Christ. You can take away our fear. You offer us the Spirit of God who now opens our eyes and mind through this passage. We understand that we get that. It came to believers now at the minute they believe. We understand that you offer us forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We understand that, Lord. And Father, those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ can offer that to someone else. Can freely say, you can have your sins forgiven. I can tell you how you can have your sins forgiven. We can have confidence in that, Lord. And Father, finally, we have the gift of faith in this passage. The faith to believe in what we did not see. Blessed, joyful, blessed joy, Lord, of those who believe. Those who God has showered his grace on that can see that Jesus died for them. So Father, I thank you for every soul in this room that has believed without seeing. Lord, bless them. Give them strength. Help them to run well. And Lord, those that are in this room that don't know Jesus as their personal Savior, They haven't seen the wounds of Jesus and rejoiced yet. I pray that today would be the day that you would open their hearts to the knowledge of the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.